You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up on the show today, brain health for women and support for black parents whose children have disabilities. But first, the holiday debt hangover. Tina Cortez has more. According to a recent poll by CIBC, fewer Canadians believe their financial situation will improve this year. With the study details is Jamie Gollenbeck, CIBC Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us what are the key findings of this poll? Well, perhaps not surprisingly, for the 11th year in a row that we've been doing this, Canadians find that paying down debt is their number one financial priority for 2021. That was at 20%. And then, of course, just following that, the second response, the most common response with 18% of Canadians saying simply keeping up with bills and getting by, which is certainly not surprising given the pandemic that we're all going through right now. And were all the findings doom and gloom? Well, uh, not all of them, but uh, it's not looking good. People are worried. Uh, Optimism has also declined uh, quite a bit. In fact, uh, You know, a lot of people felt that their financial situation would not improve in 2021. And uh, people are worried about uh, possible economic downturn. 78% of our respondents, and that compares to only 55% in the prior year. So people are worried. They're worried about inflation. They're worried about potential the rise in costs of some goods, particularly on the food side. And uh, just generally overall economic growth, a lot of uncertainty. And it makes it very difficult for, uh, for people to be able to plan ahead. You've shared what they're worried about. What is the number one financial priority for Canadians then? Well, I think the number one financial priority is simply to uh, focus on debt. And uh, and that's where you get into an interesting uh, debate in terms of, you know, what type of debt people have and how should they be managing that debt. But that certainly has been a a real concern for for many people. And debt was a number one concern in managing day-to-day expenses with a potential loss of income Mm -hmm. given the pandemic and the employment uncertainty. Before we talk a little bit about that uncertainty, what about balancing that debt and savings? How do you do that during these times? Well, that's a great question. So I think it's very important to look at the type of debt you have. So I really say there's good debt and bad debt. Uh, Good debt is for an appreciating asset. Bad debt is for a consumer uh, asset. So I think of good debt as mortgage debt. So generally, we're at the lowest rates in the history of Canada right now on mortgages. We're seeing mortgage rates now uh, certainly well below 2%. And that's what I call good debt. You're using it to live in a home. You're enjoying the home. And hopefully, you can sell the home later on one day uh, for a tax-free gain, or at least hopefully not lose money. So that's good debt. Uh, even education, I think, is good debt. You're investing in yourself. You hope to produce a job. You're investing in your own economic potential. Bad debt, of course is the credit card debt. When you're looking at interest rates on some of the credit cards at at nearly 20%, that's bad debt. And that's the kind of debt we really need to focus on before even thinking about saving, investing for retirement. 
Okay, you talked about credit card debt, and many folks right now are receiving those holiday bills, those you know statements that say, "Wow, I spent a lot over the holidays, even though I was confined to my own home." How do you negotiate those waters? How do you manage that holiday debt hangover? Yeah, it's an issue that we have every year, more so now than ever, when everyone's sort of confined, or at least many people confined to their homes, and ordering online becomes so simple, and you can push one button, and it shows up for free the next day. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yes, but people are surprised, and we're seeing uh, stories, at least anecdotally as well, about people with significant holiday debt. But I think that should be a priority. So before you put any money into your RSP or TFSA or any type of savings for this year, if you're going to have to carry a credit card, that should be your number one focus. Remember, interest rates on most credit cards, unless you've got a special low-rate card, is around 20%. That interest is not tax deductible. So, uh, you know, you have to earn 20% after tax. Uh, what kind of investment will guarantee that rate of return? Not nothing. So I think that's the number one priority. You would want to look at a budget, look at your cash flow, what income is coming in each month, whether it's a paycheck, government benefits, perhaps you have a rental property, some investment income, and then set a budget for the month, what are the expenses that you need to pay. Make debt repayment part of your budget. Include that minimum amount every year, but go uh, every month, but go beyond that and say, how can I really pay off this credit card debt as soon as possible so that the rest of the money that I have extra, if I have any, can be directed towards other savings goals. Okay, you mentioned that having a budget is key. You also mentioned that there are low mortgage rates out there right now. Are you suggesting that consumers try to take advantage of those rates at this point? Well, to the extent that someone's mortgage is coming up for renewal, absolutely. What a great opportunity. You've got to be very careful, though, if you're in an existing mortgage, you want to speak to your uh, banker or your mortgage provider, or your mortgage broker, depending on who you use, uh, because there could be significant break fees in terms of breaking a mortgage with the interest rate differential. We've seen some horror stories in the news about people who uh, simply switched mortgages, weren't aware, and were faced with huge penalties. So be very careful. Of course, if your home is coming up for renewal, your mortgage, then certainly you want to shop around. And uh, there are some excellent rates right now, all-time historic lows on the four-year, five-year rates. They're, they're really excellent right now. Great opportunity now. Uh, you want to make sure, of course, you don't overpay for your home, but mortgage debt really is an all-time low. And that's why, uh, as part of our general financial planning, uh, we actually wrote a report a number of years ago called Mortgages or Margaritas. And that's when mortgage rates were up at 3%, if you can imagine that. Mm-hmm. And uh, our, our general advice in that report was, why would you aggressively pay down a low-rate mortgage at 3% or even less if you're not saving anything in an RSP or a TFSA for retirement, where historically over the past 30, 40 years, you might be able to average a 6% rate of return, not guaranteed, but in a balanced portfolio. So something to speak to an advisor about for sure. Okay. So you mentioned as well that employment may be uncertain. The cost of goods is on the rise and we don't know what's coming next. How then do you plan? Well, I think the most important advice that we give everyone, whether it's the students that I teach at the MBA course up at Schulich or whether it's the clients that come into our office that have just won the lottery, is you want to make sure that you don't live beyond your means. And that's the most important thing. You don't want to spend more than you make to the extent that's possible. Uh, when you look at the income that's coming in, the uncertainty of a job, uh, government benefits, there are various government support programs that we know, the county recovery benefit for people that have lost their job, employment insurance, of course, and you really want to do a budget and say, look, 
Um, you know, in the short term, I may need to go into a bit of debt until I find more employment or self-employment, my business reopens, things like that, depending on your sector. But ultimately, you want to make sure that you don't live uh, beyond your means to the extent that that's possible and always try to, uh, you know, spend less than you make. Easier said than done, of course, depending on your situation. Okay. So circling back to the CIBC poll, were there items that were on sort of a dream bucket list for consumers? Well, yeah, I mean, they do have a bucket list, but things have changed. So the top dream bucket list items, of course, was traveling at 43% of respondents, but that's down 22% (laughs) from last year, 75% last year. I think with the pandemic, people are saying, oh, do I really want to travel right now? Where can I even travel to? Do I have to quarantine when I come home? So I think traveling has really come down off the radar. And of course, not surprisingly, uh, behind that, uh, something that people want to do, of course, is achieving a personal fitness goal, whether it's buying that treadmill or joining the online classes that are available virtually, or even starting a creative hobby, whether that's knitting or some kind of thing else that people can do from home. So priorities have changed. Uh, those are the top bucket item list that we found in our survey this year. Jamie, one final piece of financial advice as we head into 2021. I think the most important thing is to have a plan. In other words, you should sit down, look at the income that's coming in, look at your expenses that are really non-avoidable, uh, you know, fixed expenses, whether it's mortgage expenses or rent or, you know, your, your utilities, things that you really can't uh, avoid, and look at your discretionary spending, especially if there's employment uncertainty in your particular situation. You want to really try to have a plan, try to set goals, and then work with an advisor. It's very hard to do this alone. There are a lot of great advisors out there. Speak to friends, relatives, walk into your local financial institution, but get some advice. Don't try to do it alone. Solid advice for sure. Jamie Gollenbeck, CIBC Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning. Thank you for joining us on the feed. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, the vaccine rollout is on, but there are still those who are quite concerned about the gray area of the vaccine. Afwaba explains. Well, a survey was done just before the end of 2020. Some interesting details came out of it and some insight now as to how comfortable some Canadians are going to be with the COVID-19 vaccine and if they're going to be getting it, as well as those who are skeptical about the vaccine. So with more details, I'm now joined by Jane Wang, the CEO of Optimity. Jane, thank you so much for your time today. Happy to help. Awesome. Okay, so first off, uh, let's get into the survey and tell us about some of the interesting findings that uh, came out of it. We recently surveyed over 30,000 Canadian users on the Optimity app to get some of their insights around the COVID-19 vaccine. This includes their knowledge about the vaccine, the views on the vaccine manufacturers, and attitudes and behaviors around receiving the vaccine. So 63% of the Optimity app users across Canada uh, plan to get the vaccine. And about 59% of them were concerned about the long-term and short-term side effects. Uh, This was indicated as our top concern about getting the vaccine. And what it tells us is that people are taking the Canada health recommendations very seriously, despite having concerns about the potential side effects. So 63% say they plan to get the vaccine. 59% though say they're concerned. So are they the same people that say that they still plan to get the vaccine, but they're also on the same time concerned? Yes, there's a very high, like, heavy overlap for that. So the 59% of the Canadians concerned about the side effects are um, heavily overlapping with the 63% that said they would 
take the vaccine. And what's really interesting, too, if you compare that to the flu vaccine, of the standard flu vaccine, and we've published data around this uh, earlier this year as well, um, usually uh, the people that take flu vaccine, the flu vaccine itself is, you know, a much lower efficacy than the COVID vaccine. But this year in our flu vaccine findings, you know, 40, it's a 42% increase of the number of people that were getting the flu vaccine. So it also showed that uh, generally, the Canadian public is interested in protecting themselves. We know that uh, during the early stages of the creation of the COVID vaccine, a lot of people were saying that they were skeptical, they weren't going to get it. But now, you know, coming towards the end of 2020, beginning a new year, a lot of people are more optimistic about it, even though some of them have their concerns. Also, a part of the survey, too, there's still a small percentage, well, that's a, it's a percentage nonetheless, that say that they're not going to be getting the vaccine at all. Yeah, so there's 11% that indicated that they're not planning to get the vaccine. Uh, 41% of those people cited the fact that it was actually insufficient research as a top reason for that decision. So again, this highlights, you know, the need for more education around the vaccine development process. The Canadians themselves may have a different perspective on, you know, how they know about the pharmaceutical companies, what, what are they able to uh, do in su- literally the fastest process of approval where, you know, the clinical trials process typically takes 10 years to approve something that is super condensed into less than a year. So I totally understand where they're coming from, but I think the education itself is really important. I want to make an additional point, which is the insights on our COVID-19 vaccine survey. It reinforced the need for the consumer education around vaccines. So a prime example of that is that 22% of respondents are actually on the fence about taking the vaccine. Uh, their ultimate decision can be informed through education by the Canadian government and other healthcare organizations on the topic, such as safety of the COVID vaccines and also what it takes to achieve herd immunity for us overall. Absolutely. So then let's push that part of the conversation uh, further. I mean, what may be off the top of your mind, or maybe this might be a survey coming down the pipe later on, but what could be some of the things that the government and even health officials could do to begin to help uh, the Canadian population basically feel comfortable in getting the vaccine and not be as skeptical about it? I think it's really important to be transparent uh, with uh, all the new research that's coming out. And I think this is not only the Canadian government should, that should be doing it. I think the vaccine manufacturers, the pharmaceutical companies should be doing that as well. And then the second part uh, to that, uh, I guess the flip side of the coin, is that uh, many people have questions about it. So making that data as well as being available resources to answer people's questions is really important. What I found that on our platform is actually the consistent availability of that information. We have the specific COVID modules for people to go and educate themselves or search up um, information about that. And that's been heavily tapped into in the recent months. Absolutely. Uh, now that we're talking about the vaccine being available, there's also that discussion as to whether it should be mandatory. And there's some two interesting stats here that came out from the survey about what people feel about that. Yeah, so 53% believe that they should be able to choose which uh, COVID-19 vaccine they should receive. And then 43% believe that the COVID-19 vaccine should be mandatory. This is definitely top of mind for all Canadians, right? And I think what's really top of mind for us as people that are protecting um, a population of health is that we must be 
providing the right information, um, helping them with most up-to-date information, but also supporting them in that journey as they're making up their decisions. And also um, the vaccine process itself, the many vaccines have different, slightly different efficacies. They have slightly different science behind them as well. So helping, helping the consumers understand that is important to gaining trust uh, in them taking the vaccine so that we can be more safe as a community. Absolutely. And also wanted then to ask, um, part of the survey where Canadians asked about uh, which vaccine they would prefer, whether it be Pfizer or Moderna. There's more details on the specific data that you can download from our website. So, you know, um, the public is welcome to go look at that. Uh, that. We're impartial. We're like a third-party impartial server, so I don't want to sway anyone's uh, decision there, especially as there is also additional uh, approved vaccines coming out. Absolutely. Fair enough. Um, and then on that note, then, uh, as you just mentioned, if uh, anyone wants to get more information about this survey, very interesting findings, and more information about uh, the company Optimity, where can they go for more info? Oh, absolutely. So you can visit our website, myoptimity.com. So that's M-Y-O-P-T-I-M-I-T-Y.com. Uh, you can get uh, the information for the company. So we both service the consumer side. So uh, insurance companies as well as employers in corporate wellness programs. And we also have a consumer app that's available for free for all public, which was formerly Carrot Rewards, that rewards the users for walking and completing short educational surveys. So that's what we're running these public health education surveys on. So uh, if they wanted any information uh, for public health, they can go and download the app um, and use that for free. And then if they wanted information on the reports that we're publishing, uh, they can go through the website to our uh, blog section where they can actually download the detailed reports on both the flu vaccine as well as the uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Perfect. All right. Breaking down the numbers on how Canadians feel about the COVID-19 vaccine, I've been speaking with Jane Wang, CEO of Optimity. Thank you so much once again. Thank you for having me. Next on the feed, two very different support groups, women's brain health and black parents of children with disabilities. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Here are some startling statistics to think about when it comes to women and serious brain conditions. Nearly 70% of people with Alzheimer's are women. Women suffer from depression, stress and anxiety twice as much as men. Women take longer than men to recover from concussions. Four times as many women have MS as men. More women die of stroke than men. And... This is what's equally disturbing. The pandemic is making things much worse. Lynn Poslins is the founder and CEO of Women's Brain Health Initiative, and she joins us now on the feed. Thank you for being with us. Hi, Anne. So, Lynn, why do you think women suffer more serious brain conditions than men, and why is their suffering greater than men's? 
Well, that is the million-dollar question, and we just don't have the answers. So one of the reasons I founded Women's Brain Health Initiative was to understand why women are more susceptible to these brain aging diseases than men and why the research is currently focused on on men. And because of that, we don't understand why women are more susceptible. It may be hormonal. It may be because as women uh, transition through uh, menopause, they no longer have the protective a cognitively protective uh, hormone with the estrogen, um, and is that a reason? They, they don't understand, and that's what needs to be uh, sussed out by the research community. It's interesting. It almost draws a parallel to heart disease, and for years, for decades, uh, the focus was on men and their issues and their the treatment needed and the prevention but women's heart disease is entirely different from men and it's very similar to what you've been telling us about the women's brain conditions that they are struggling with very different from men Yes, and, and, and that's very true about uh, w- uh, women's heart health versus uh, man's heart health. Uh, women were uh, suffering from heart failure because their symptoms presented differently. They, it might be in digestion, not the typical, you know, Hollywood-style clutch your heart and fall over. Um, that's not how most women experience um, uh, heart conditions, and it wasn't until they looked at it separately that they understood women may need something different than men in terms of treatment uh, because their symptoms presented differently as well. There seems to be something going on with women's brain health that also impacts them differently as they age than men. And so the research is so necessary, and that's why one of the many reasons that you created this uh, initiative, research, it, it takes time, and it takes energy that is very different when you're talking about the brain, and it takes intelligence from the researchers that is beyond me, that's for sure. What kind of research is being done now to to help women deal with brain conditions in the future? So one of the things that we have done is we fund the world's first research chair in women's brain health and aging, and that was awarded to Dr. Jillian Einstein at the University of Toronto. And Jill is studying uh, the implications of uh, hormones and brain health, but also uh, sleep and brain health, um, because uh, women do have uh, different types of sleep disorders than men. Um, you know, when we have young kids, they keep us up at night. When we have teenagers, they like to talk to us in the at night. When you go through menopause, you don't sleep. Is sleep also, uh, does sleep also negatively impact on cognitive health is another area that's being studied by Dr. Einstein and her team. So we're talking about causes, but we also need to think about treatment and prevention. Those are really big issues. Correct. Correct. And in fact, that's another side of the type of work that we do. We focus on educating the public about what they can do to protect their brain health. And that's important because of two things uh, that we now understand. One, by the time symptoms of diseases like Alzheimer's occurs, and of course Alzheimer's is the biggest cause of dementia, by the time the symptoms occur, it's likely the damage has happened 25 to 30 years prior. So really Alzheimer's is a midlife disease whose symptoms show up in old age. And the other thing we understand now is that as much as 40% of all cases of dementia can be avoided through lifestyle. So genetics alone are not enough to tip the scale. 
So these two things combined indicate that there's more that we can do in terms of controlling our own cognitive destiny than we may have realized. So it's not just because you may be genetically susceptible. In fact, if you have the gene, you may be more susceptible than if you don't, but it's not enough to tip the scale towards uh, Alzheimer's disease. Do you think that serious brain conditions can ever or actually be reversed? Well, I think that's what the scientific community is hoping for in terms of a treatment. But with as many drugs as they found, the only thing that they currently have shown to uh, have an impact around is maybe delaying the symptoms. But certainly there is no cure at the moment. The best cure, in fact, maybe what you said, which is prevention, don't get there in the first place. And the key there is to start young. And there are certain things we now understand that, in fact, cumulatively, work to either delay and possibly prevent uh, dementia in the first place. There's something that I've heard of called brain fitness. What are your thoughts on brain fitness? So that's one of the lifestyle, uh, in, uh, modifiable lifestyle choices that I talked about. Um, and that is the kind of things that you can do to protect your brain health as you age. So there's mental stimulation. Uh, that's mental fitness. There's exercise, physical fitness. Um, there's also social engagement. And again, you talked about the impact of COVID. Uh, keeping people isolated is uh, very bad for your brain health as you age. So, social, social isolation leads to depression. Um, and uh, again, d- depression untreated can lead to uh, cognitive impairment, including dementia. There's also, as I mentioned, sleep, stress. Stress is also very harmful to all of your cells. They prematurely, stress prematurely ages your brain cells um, and, and causes cognitive impairment. Um, and the last thing I, I would say in terms of protecting your brain health is nutrition. What you eat definitely impacts the health of your brain as you get older. So you touched on COVID-19, the pandemic. What are some of the other effects that, that this pandemic, in all of its nastiness, is having on women's brain health and those who are at this point struggling with brain conditions? Well, I think what's happened is that people aren't exercising as much. They're certainly not staying as social as they, as they had been. I mean, yes, people have learned to use uh, Zoom and other types of digital platforms, but um, particularly for women, they find stress is alleviated when they have close personal contact with friends and family. And, of course, that has been very difficult uh, during COVID. People aren't necessarily eating properly either. And, yes, it's great that they now have services where they deliver the food. But, again, are people's food choices as healthy as they should be? Probably not. But sedentary lifestyle, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, uh, obesity, smoking, all of these things negatively impact uh, your cognitive health as you age. So you're increasing your risk. Um, and, and that's what's happened during COVID. People, are, again, aren't sleeping properly um, during COVID. They're probably drinking too much as well. It's interesting that the LCBO has stayed open <laughs> through all this. Mm, mm. Yeah, very interesting on, indeed. So what do we do with this information? The, the change in a woman's brain and on a negative uh, trajectory is often silent and can go unnoticed. So what do we do with this information and with Women's Brain Health Initiative? I think people, again, need to understand they do have some sense of control by modifying their lifestyle, that 
and people need to, um, you know, not say, oh, you know, when I'm in my 70s or 80s, I better start looking at my risk factors because I, you know, I don't want to get some kind of cognitive impairment. The younger you start, the stronger the protective effect will be. I remember uh, Dr. Black from Sunnybrook Hospital talking about the decade where exercise has the biggest impact on your brain health when you're in your 70s, and it's in your 20s. So exercise in your 20s leads to the strongest cognitive benefit when you're in your 70s and older. Well, what 20-year-old's thinking about what they're doing today you know, might uh, be harmful or beneficial to their brain health when they're in their 70s and their 80s. So the younger you start, the stronger the, the protective effect will be. Well, you certainly are getting the message out. It is loud and clear, and it's a little scary, but, you know, information is key to moving forward in life. That's always been my belief. If anyone wants more information about Women's Brain Health Initiative or they would like to contribute in order to fund research, where do they go? Well, they certainly are more than welcome to go on our website, womensbrainhealth.org. We've got tons of great information, including all kinds of tips and things you can do to protect your brain health, yourself and or your loved ones. Um, and again, the kind of things that increase your risk too. You do, you do need to know uh, the good and the bad when it comes to your brain health. And, it, you know, it's, think about what's good for your heart is also good for your, for your brain. Hmm. Very well put. Lynn Poslins, the founder and CEO of Women's Brain Health Initiative. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thanks, Anne, for having me. It was November of last year that Clovis Grant, CEO of 360 Kids, and his wife Sharon Grant, the principal at Derry Down Public School, established an unique support group for black parents whose children have disabilities. The creation of this support group came from the Grants' own personal experience raising their son Isaiah, diagnosed with autism at the age of four. Clovis and Sharon Grant join us now on the feed to talk more about the newly created Black Parent Support Group. Thank you both for being with us. We appreciate the opportunity. Yep, thanks for having us. So Sharon, what was your experience like in the past attending support groups for parents of children with autism? Well, uh, as you mentioned, Anne, our son was diagnosed at the age of four. He's now t uh, 24, uh, so this has been a 20-year journey. Um, so what I have always appreciated about the groups is the knowledge that you get from each other and that connection that, you know, we're in this, this battle of, of and this journey of raising a child with a disability. And the parents were always very supportive and warm and welcoming, but there was always something missing for me um, as a parent, as a black parent, uh, the lens through which I'm raising my child, uh, you know, and, and issues I would like to broach with the parents, but I know that um, uh, the response or the connection would be different um, in speaking about how to broach the topic of disability in our black families, um, you know, because we don't really talk about disability or understand disability in this North American context. 
contest the way that others do, and um, and even at our, our places of worship, um, you know, again, there can be challenges there of people's understanding and, and approaching the area of disability in an appropriate way. And so these are like kind of gaps and, and, and a little bit of loneliness that I felt attending these groups and always yearned to meet other families from the black community like myself, and I met one or two along the way, but I knew there was many more out there. So finally in 2020, you know, Corvus and I decided this is the year to launch it. So uh, still with you, Sharon, what was the disconnect between white parents of children with disabilities and black parents of children with disabilities, in your view? I'd say one thing is is in, in, in the North American context, I think when it comes to the area of disability, there's a little bit more progressive thinking, a little bit more openness about having a child with a disability. And when we first introduced, you know, our, our son, you know, having autism, that's a hidden disability. And I think for many, you know, if it was something more physical that you could see, I think there'd be more understanding. But in our case with our son, sometimes he just didn't understand what it was. And they sometimes attributed his behavioral issues to poor parenting, lack of structure. Um, and that, you know, made Kovas and I, you know, feel, you know, sad at times and questioning ourselves. And so it would have been, you know, and then in speaking to other black parents along the way, I've realized many of them have felt the same way as well. Well-meaning intentions from our family members and from our friends, but just that lack of understanding, that lack of discussion, and then even bringing our child around to family events and the comments and things that would be made. Again, I know families in other cultures also go through those things, but again, to have people who are from that background, they understand what those, those Christmas holidays and getting with the extended family and the comments that, that can be made, there's an understanding there, and then there's that connection, that support that you can get from other people who really understand that cultural nuance around having a child with a disability and just helping your family and, and, and helping them to understand what you're going through and what we need them to do, not to shun our child, not even to be scared of those challenges, but to really work as a unit to help in supporting that child and supporting the parents. I think w one of the things that uh, we, we notice along the way is that there's just not uh, a lot of uh, representation of black people coming to those groups. And, and so the question was always, why? Why not? It's not as if there aren't. Uh, those individuals, uh, I mean, I, I was a member of the Special Education Advisory Committee for the board, and I know that uh, there are quite a number of, of um, families uh, who are black uh, who, are, uh, who have a, who have, uh, a child um, in the school system, for sure, with a disability, but they're not coming out to those groups. So when my wife is talking about feeling alone, when I've gone to um, dad groups, it's the same. There aren't many people who are black coming out. And so part of it, whether spoken or unspoken, uh, it, their needs are not being met. And we're trying through this group to figure out what those needs are and uh, provide a more cultural lens uh, to, uh, to the issue. Clovis and Sharon, is it fair to say that you were dealing with racism when it came to the support groups and, and the lack of connection in them? I wouldn't say uh, it was overt. I think there, there was uh, certainly um, something missing, um, and, uh, and, and even just uh, the, some of the understandings that uh, 
know, that we can talk about things very openly and people understand it. I mean, for, for, for example, my son uh, at 24, um, he's six foot four, he's uh, 240 pounds. Um, but for whenever he and I go out to a, to a store, as an example, I know that there is a lens by which people see two, call myself young, <laughs> two, two, two black people, two black males coming into a store, and my son having no respect necessarily because of his disability for um, personal space, and he doesn't really care about what people think, but I do because I'm aware of the, 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 the way that blacks are, are viewed um, especially when you, you're at stores, because uh, with or without him, I've, I've experienced it. So there is that understanding about racism that, um, that we have, and, and as members of the black community, and people in our group would, would get right off the bat that you wouldn't necessarily get that understanding at, a, at, a, at some of the groups that we were participating in, because it's not people's experience, but I could certainly speak to that and, and people can understand it. So whether it was overt, um, it, it, it wasn't that overt, but it was certainly very uh, a covert kind of uh, racism that we were trying to address. And I, I think, you know, just to add a little bit more, it, it wasn't intentional, but again, as Clovis alluded to earlier, the fact that we've gone to, you know, so many of these meetings on a regular basis and there's such a lack of representation you know, and, and some parents have expressed that they've gone to these means and they just haven't felt included for whatever reason, just a, a gut feeling or just the tone um, of the meeting, perhaps coming from a white lens, a, a, a white Eurocentric way of being and just not feeling that inclusion of, of black or African ways of being. And again, we know the children are out there because our son went to those groups, those social skills groups and those uh, physiotherapy groups and behavioral groups, and we saw the other black children there, but yet their parents are not at the meetings. So there's obviously some type of disconnect you know, when the black parents do attend that they're not coming back. So there, there's something missing. And again, we hope that this group will be able to provide what that missing piece is. So when in doubt, figure it out and start your own group. And I understand that more than 30 parents participated in the inaugural meeting in November. You meet once a month virtually. Walk us through a typical meeting and, and who is attending? Uh, I, I will uh, address that. Uh, the, the, the group is um, for all parents uh, with, who are black, identified as black, and who have a child with a disability. Um, and, and it could be the range of disabilities. And, and uh, from uh, what we've seen thus far, we have uh, autism. Uh, we've got um, ADHD, uh, attention deficit hyperactive disorder. Uh, we've got... Um, uh, chromosomal, uh, we've got medical issues, we've got mild intellectual disability. Uh, there is a huge range um, of, of disabilities that are there. Um, the meetings typically um, are um, very focused on a topic. Uh, we, we try to select a topic for, for each meeting, but it starts off with um, introductions. There are some, uh, we've had only two meetings, but typically some kind of introduction where people share about themselves and, and their child or children. Some have multiple kids on, uh, who, are, who have a disability. 
Um, and then we, we uh, launch into a dis different discussions. Uh, our first um, meeting was with a pediatrician, and um, she spoke about uh, how to approach the medical community when um, addressing uh, the needs of your, your, your child. And then we would come back, uh, make, make it very flexible so that people can ask questions, because this is not about just giving information, but we know that we, we need the people to feel engaged. And then right from the, the get-go, we, we, we said that we wanted to make sure that the, 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 the needs of the, the particular individuals coming out to the group um, are addressed. And so we've got uh, a scheduled um, topics uh, for the next probably six or so months based on the initial feedback that the, the, the families gave to us as to things that are of interest to them. So, for instance, our, our meeting in January, on January 12th, will be focused on um, resources because that was something big that was important, financial resources, funding that is available. Sounds to me that this group that you have created, this support group, is helping a lot of parents, but it's also helping you in a way. Clovis and Sharon, how do people find out more about the next meeting, January 12th? Uh, they can reach out to us directly at our uh, email, which is bpsgroup2020 at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, and it is BPSG uh, Black Parents of Children and Adults with a Disability. Uh, so those are the two main ways to, uh, to reach out to us. Clovis and Sharon Grant, the founders of the Black Parent Support Group, thank you so much for sharing your story and giving us your time on the feed today. Thank you so much, Anne, and uh, we look forward to as many individuals, especially from the York region, to, to join us because it's a free group and uh, it's just an opportunity for parents to mentor one another and share our journey. So thank you for this opportunity. Yes, thank you for helping us get the word out. We really appreciate it. After the break, Shades of Hope for Wildlife, this is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Our next stop takes us to Pefferlaw, to the Shades of Hope Wildlife Refuge. Jim Lang with the incredible care that it provides. As 2021 unfolds, we are a sucker for a feel-good story and people making a difference in the community. One of those is an organization in the region based in Georgina and Pfefferlaw, Shades of Hope. Shadesofhope.ca are doing amazing things to help wildlife in York region. And their founder and their board president is Gail Lenters, and she joins us on the feed. Gail, how are you? I'm just great. Thanks, Jim, for calling. Well, it's my pleasure. And first, I guess we, we got to know what Shades of Hope are all about with that viral video that was a deer stuck in freezing water, New York Regional Police coming to its rescue. Unfortunately, the deer didn't make it, but it really shone a light on the fact that as York Region grows, wildlife is at risk. Uh, yes, it certainly is. That was a very uh, dramatic story and a sad story in the end. But there are many uh, such the same uh, going on every day. 
Now, you and your organization, you nurture, treat, rehabilitate injured and orphaned native wildlife in the region. I guess to give the listeners an idea of what you're talking about, what kind of numbers do you guys end up working with in a year? How many animals do you help? <laughs> well, uh, actually, this year we topped the year at 6,232 animals that came through our doors. 6,200? Yes, over 6,000. Wow. That is incredible. So now how much of that is animals getting stuck in an industrial area they didn't expect or suburban growth that wasn't there before? What is one of the main culprits why these animals are end up sent to you? Well, largely loss of habitat. Um, uh, most of our animals are, are spring babies, summer babies, so baby squirrels, bunnies, um, tons and tons of birds that arrive because... Um, uh, either uh, cats or dogs have, have attacked them, or people have cut down trees and uh, put nests at uh, at risk. Um, lawns mowed, sheds cleaned out, and, and animals are displaced. Now, I know I, I, I live with my wife and I. We've lived in Newmarket for a long time. Coyotes now are a big part of our life in Newmarket, Aurora, and all throughout the region. Coyotes are an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much is the coyote population? affecting the wildlife population of the region and maybe animals that you need to save from them? Um, no, we, we, uh, I, I, I can't say we've even received animals that uh, have been injured by coyotes. Nobody's going to go and rescue one from, from a coyote. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, right, but, but they're, they're facing loss of hab- habitat as well. I, I mean, I, I know my wife and I, we, we adore my kids' wildlife and we we have the bird feeder, and we leave out uh, stuff for the chipmunk and stuff like that. What mm-hmm. are things we can do to help these babies in the spring, these animals and birds who need our need their help? Just, just uh, try and remember that springtime is baby time, and and summer is as well. And uh, our our wild ones need to be able to nurture their families, and uh, everything we do has an impact of, uh, uh, on the world around us. So. Uh, particularly spring cleanups, just be aware there are little creatures out there that uh, you might not see until you've already um, harmed some of their their environment. Speaking with Gail Lenter, the founder and board president of Shades of Hope. You can get more information on their amazing website, shadesofhope.ca. You've been doing this a long time, Gail. What, what was it about wildlife that drew you to such a passionate person and so into saving these animals and birds? Uh, it was an obvious need. Um, when uh, we started nine years ago, um, it, it, there, there, there were very few places to take animals. When you see animals dead on the road or suffering on the road, or no, nobody had a place to take them or a place just to call for help to ask, what do we do? So uh, recognizing that need, um, I wanted to help. So I, I know your organization, you're licensed by the Ministry of National Resources and Fisheries and Canadian Wildlife Services. Are you finding that the partnership with all those organizations working with each other is making a difference? Um, those organizations just license us, they are really, uh, and they govern us. There's, there's no assistance there. We are not assisted by any government organization. No, but are you finding just maybe your biggest assistance as members of the community and the public at large in the region? Um, ours, yes, um, we, we try to educate the public so that they're aware of what the issues are out there. And, and uh, in the end, they, they sometimes volunteer or are certainly able to turn around and help others. Um, but we also work with other rehabs uh, throughout Ontario as well. 
Now, I know part of what you guys do is you help birds and animals and such, and I always forget reptiles, and I see turtle crossing <laughs> signs in the region. And how many turtles would we have in the region? Oh, gosh, um, I, I, I can't answer that. Um, we do see a, a good number of them in the spring, um, crossing, crossing roads, and many of the other wildlife just crossing our roads as they, they uh, head towards their, their, um, their food territories and, and uh, breeding territories. But turtles, uh, poor turtles are, are in, definitely in trouble. So when you see those signs, heed the sign and look out for them, especially in the springtime. Yes, look out for all of our wildlife on, on the roads, yes. Uh, Gail Linter, shadesofhope.ca, they're always looking for donations. If there are people listening who would like to offer their services or their time or volunteer, can they reach out to you or they, can they go to the website to see what they can do to help as well? Absolutely. There are, there's a wish list on our website, and there's information, and there's uh, a page of tips of what to do if you encounter any uh, specific animal. And, uh, of course, always our, our phone number is right there. If you need to talk to somebody or, or need some advice, please phone us. Uh, Gail, I, I can't thank you and your staff enough for what you're doing in the region. I, I remember my wife and I, we found a baby mouse in our lawnmower that had nested there in the winter, <laughs> and we tried to nurse it back to health. It, it unfortunately didn't make it, but I, I know we consider ourselves one of those families in the region that like want to help your organization in Shades of Hope and do whatever we can to save these baby animals in the springtime. That's fabulous. It's really important to care. Every life out there has a purpose, and uh, they're, they're in our environment, uh, in our ecosystem for a reason. So it's important to care. Well said, Gail. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Keep up the great work, and hopefully it's a good spring for uh, birds and animals and reptiles and mammals in New York region, thanks to you and your staff. Thank you so much. Thank you for your interest. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.